0: This morning we are in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. So we're starting in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5 and reading through the end of the chapter. As we typically do, we will read this whole portion this morning. But next week, we will be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. We will be covering both chapters, 6 and 7. And I will not be reading out the entire chapter. It's a pretty long uh, section of scripture there in chapters 6 and 7 so I encourage you read those chapters beforehand there, there's a wonderful record there of the life of Stephen Stephen as he's selected as a deacon, as a, as a person serving in the, in the church as such and then how he testifies to the Lord and then how he's martyred so Acts 6 and 7 will cover that next week but we will not read through every single verse so I encourage you read that beforehand this morning We are reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And the title for this message is, If It Is From God. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. If you don't know what that is, it's just the eastern hall or section of the temple court. So the temple in Jerusalem, in one section, what was, what was actually supposed to be uh, the remnant of the Solomon's temple, right? that had all been destroyed, but a sort of remnant area, that was called Solomon's colonnade and the people would meet there. So there are other references in the gospel also where Jesus is in this, in this area, Solomon's porch. Some translations will say Solomon's port. So the believers, the children of God, who are believing in Jesus as the Messiah, they are meeting in the temple court and from house to house. We'll see that too. But this specific reference is that these believers are meeting in Solomon's colonnade. And the next two verses sound contradictory. So let me explain them as we go along. Verse 13, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Verse 14, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. What does that mean? In verse 13, it is really referring to the religious leaders and those who were aligned with the religious leaders. They would not join with the believers even though they were declaring Jesus as Messiah and so on. Those people did not join, and they dared not, because of what? The fear of man, not the fear of God, the fear of man. They would not join with the believers. But in verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women, who? Those men and women who were seeking the Lord, who were eager to know the truth, who were responding to the gospel message, they were coming and joining together with these believers, and they believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by." Again, let me pause here to say the Bible does not clearly say that shadow casting healed them. It doesn't say this. What's happening is that the people are so eager to be close in proximity to peter and the apostles they can see they can they are they are they are able to witness that the power of God is manifest. This is the same kind of thing that people were doing with Jesus. They would want to get close to him. They would want to touch him. They would want to be in close proximity because they could see that the power of God was manifest on him and that there was an anointing on him. They couldn't explain it. They didn't know what it was, but they knew that there was something happening. So here are a similar kind of thing. The people are so eager to get close to these apostles that they're hoping that even if he's in close proximity and even It's close enough that his shadow can fall on them, they may get healed. So this is not a method. The Bible is not saying from now on have the school of the prophets and the school of shadow casting. Learn how to cast your shadow so that people can be healed. That's not the thing that's going on. It is not prescribing a method. It is simply saying that the people were coming and were trying to press in because they could see that signs and wonders and things were happening. They could see that God was moving. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Remarkable. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And that should remind you of what we read in Acts chapter 4 verses 19 through 20 when Peter and John were first brought before the Sanhedrin after the lame man was healed. They said, what is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? Right? They asked these leaders that you be the judges. Right? So here, a similar kind of thing. He says, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. So again, there were false messiahs, people people claiming to be the messiah, trying to come to say that this is how you can be saved, and then others trying to say, I'm the messiah, and I'm going to lead you in revolt against the Romans. All that was going on but none of that had succeeded. And so Gamaliel says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Rejoicing that they were suffering. What a difference. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This morning I want to draw your attention, or our, our attention collectively, to a statement that this teacher of the law, Gamaliel, made, and then consider the implications of that statement. Now, Gamaliel was not a believer in Jesus. He's not believing in Jesus as the Messiah. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, in fact, that condemned Jesus to death. But he was a Jewish religious leader who knew Yahweh, the true and living God, and he was well versed in the scriptures the Old Testament. So his statement and the people are paying attention to him, his statement in verses 38 and 39 his statement is, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activities of human origin it will fail, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God sound counsel in fact his speech persuaded the others but his statement prompts a question that is relevant for us today and it's relevant for us when we're considering anything in our lives and especially as we're making decisions how do you know if something is from God or not in the 1730s and 1740s in Britain and in the 13 North American colonies. This is before the formation of the United States in 1776. So in 1730s and 1740s, in that mid-18th century, in Britain and in the colonies, there was a series of Christian revivals referred to as the Great Awakening or the Evangelical Revival. And the Great Awakening permanently affected Protestantism and essentially birthed the evangelical movement in Europe and America. It was through these revival meetings, some of which had over 30,000 people in attendance. And this is in the 1700s. No mass communication. No texting to say, oh, we're meeting in this place. Come. You know, no no easy travel to get places. 30,000 people. And the population is much lower. 30,000 people at least you know, in, in some of these gatherings coming together in these revival meetings. It was through these revival meetings that even people who were going to church for all their lives and their families had been going to church, they had become so institutionalized in these churches that even church-going Christians, they started to understand about conviction of sin. They started to understand about the assurance of salvation. They understood about a new birth that would be experienced in the heart, in the spirit. And they started to see and understand about the manifest work of the Holy Spirit. The Great Awakening was taking place. And so this Great Awakening, it even inspired the the creation of evangelical educational institutions, including Princeton University in 1746 and Dartmouth College in 1754. They came out of this great awakening. But at the same time as all of this is going on, there were plenty of people who were opponents of these revival meetings. And they claimed that these meetings were fostering disorder, fanaticism. They felt the emphasis on personal experience was just emotionalism. It was ungodly. They felt these revivalists were just ignorant people. You know, it sounds like what the religious leaders said about the apostles too, right? Unlearned, ignorant men. So there was a lot of opposition to all of this. One of the key leaders in the Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. And I'm not going into the details of his life or the lives of some of the other prominent figures or leaders in the movement, John and Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, and a lot of other names there. I encourage you to read about these leaders and about the Great Awakening itself, Uh, both the good and the bad about these men's lives. There There was both good and bad in their lives, but I encourage you to read about it and to read about what happened and what God did through that time. Very fascinating, very interesting. But in September 1741, Jonathan Edwards gave a commencement address at Yale University. And, and you may be surprised to hear this but Yale University was a bastion of the evangelical movement it didn't come out of the evangelical movement but they embraced it and they were a big supporter of it for almost a century and so he's speaking at their commencement and he used 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 which says Beloved, believe not every spirit but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world And he was using that scripture as his text to defend what was going on in the revival meetings because of all of these things. So in both in New England and in other areas as these revival meetings were happening, he was laying out how you could evaluate whether or not this was a spiritual movement that was from God or whether it was not. So in this commencement address, he starts to speak about this. He wrote about this. He preached about this. And he talks about the fact that you know it was in the apostolic age, you know, in that first century, in that time that we are reading about and studying in the book of Acts, it was during that time that the church witnessed, the world witnessed the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? Miraculous things and extraordinary manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But during that same period of time, there were lots of things that were not of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in, in subsequent chapters in Acts, we'll read about some of that. All sorts of things were going on that seemed kind of extraordinary or miraculous, but they were not of God. And so Edwards is pointing out that these false prophets, these works that were not of God, is what the apostles were warning the believers. They said, be careful. These things will happen. These things are coming. So in terms of determining whether something was a work of God, Edwards talked about, you know, Explicitly ungodly things or explicitly unbiblical. But he used, quite interestingly, two terms. He he talked about negative signs and positive signs. And when he uses the word negative signs, he's not saying this means it's not from God. He's saying at best it's sort of like neutral. They're not positive. It's the opposite of being positive. Here's a positive sign that shows you this is a work of God, but here's a negative sign that may not mean anything. Don't rely on that. That was his... That was where he was going. And so he listed out at least five negative signs. And he said, the movement includes very unusual and extraordinary happenings. It produces, number one, that was number one. Number two, it produces bodily effects upon people such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of body, or the failing of bodily strength. Number three, it becomes the talk of the town. Number four, it makes great impressions on people's imaginations. Number five, it is promoted by use of examples in an attempt to prove the validity of the movement. In a sense, the end justifies the means, or look at all these results. Right? That was what was happening. instead of using these signs to prove that the Great Awakening was from God and all these signs were happening in these revival meetings you know, Edward's point was that they should not be used as a proof that it is the work of the Holy Spirit he was stating what we also know to be true that these kinds of signs could easily be part of a movement that is not of the Holy Spirit we've seen that throughout history and in the present and (laughs) The thing is, we are very quick to look at these kinds of things. External signs, physical manifestations, what we perceive with our natural senses, what appeals to our thinking and our desires, what gets results, what brings fame and fortune. And we say, must be a work of God. But here are the positive signs that Edwards points to that reveal that a work is to be from the Holy Spirit or that a work is from God. Number one. It raises the people's esteem of Jesus. People start to consider Jesus as primary, as most important, as everything. It raises the people's esteem of Jesus. Number two, it works against the lust and corruptions of the flesh, leading to repentance and to seeking righteousness. He has a long description about this. I'm not even going to go through all of this, but he's talking about the fact that, you know, when all of these things come into our lives, the work of God comes into our lives, it needs to. The influence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is yet more abundantly manifest if persons have their hearts drawn off from the world and weaned from the objects of their worldly lusts and taken off from worldly pursuits by the sense they have of the excellency of divine things and the affection they have to those spiritual enjoyments of another world that are promised in the gospel. The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what he's pointing to. Number three, when the move of God, when it's a genuine move of God, it will increase people's estimation, Now these are his words, right? It will increase people's estimation of the Bible. They will consider the Bible to be paramount. And so number four is related to that, the movement of God will convince people of the truths revealed in God's word. So he says, if we observe that the Spirit is at work, when we see see that the Spirit makes men more sensible than they used to be, (laughs) then they realize there is a God, that He's a great God, that He's a sin-hating God. He makes them realize, He makes them more to realize it that they must die, and that life is short and very uncertain. And it confirms persons in it that there is another world, that they have immortal souls, and that they must give account of themselves to God. And it convinces them that they are exceedingly sinful by nature and practice, and that they are helpless in themselves, and confirms them in other things that are agreeable to sound doctrine. The spirit that works thus operates as a spirit of truth. He represents things as they are indeed. He brings men to the light, for whatever makes truth manifest is light. And then number five, the move of God produces genuine love for God and others. Edward says, here it is evident that the apostle is still comparing those two sorts of persons that are influenced by the opposite kinds of spirits and mentions love as a mark by which we may know who has the true spirit. Christian love, or true charity, is a humble love. Love and humility are two things the most contrary to the spirit of the devil, of anything in the world. For the character of that evil spirit above all else consists in pride and malice. So what are the positive signs? Oh, the positive signs that there is a move of God is that it raises the people's esteem of Jesus. It works against lust and corruptions of the flesh, leading us to repentance and seeking righteousness. It increases our estimation of the Bible. It convinces us of the truths revealed in the Word of God. And it produces genuine love for God and others. So what are the signs that we should be looking for? More new churches? God's moving. Ooh, God's moving in this city. whole bunch of new churches more people attending church we would consider that a big big sign of revival right more people attending church more programs youth young adults more programs let's go after that more passion for politics more community impact more care for the poor these may all be signs of god's work but they may not here's what we need to look for whether we're actually growing in our relationship and love for Jesus, the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture, whether we have such a high view of the Bible that we're eager to repent of sin and we're eager to seek holiness and we have a humble love for God and other people. As I'm describing all of this to you, all these signs and what Jonathan Edwards was saying and the defense of the Great Awakening and so on, and we say, is this from God, is it not? And as we try to do all of this, there would be one word that maybe comes to many of your minds, and that word is discernment. The Bible speaks of discernment, the ability to distinguish between good and evil. The Bible speaks of us being able to discern if something is of God or it's not of God. It may not be explicitly of the devil, but it may be of your flesh. It may be of the world. And how do we discern? How do we know the difference? Well, there are at least two or three things that we want to go through, and I want to quickly go through these. The first thing is that we, as the children of God, would grow in knowledge, in understanding, and in wisdom. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 15 says, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the years of the wise seek it out. And in Proverbs 3, verses 21 through 26, it says, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion or discernment. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. You want good sleep at night? You're having trouble sleeping at night? Get discernment. Get wisdom of God. Get knowledge and understanding from God. You'll sleep better. You'll sleep better. Not, you can take your, you know, a glass of hot milk too, but you know, guess what? Get discernment. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. Knowledge lets us know what is going on, or just it tells us, it shows us what's happening. Understanding helps us to understand why it's happening. What is God's purpose? What is going on here? What is this that is intended through this? But wisdom helps us to respond. Wisdom says, this is the way. Walk in it. I see that there is a way. I understand that this is the way of life. And wisdom now helps me to walk in it. So knowledge, understanding, and wisdom have to all go together. We grow in these things, and therefore, through that, gain a heart of discernment. Number two, or this next point that I want to make. Train your senses to sharpen your discernment. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, Paul is writing and he's, he's explaining to the believers that they should, they at this time, have been mature in the word and in the relationship with God and in their discernment. And so he's bringing a little bit of a correction to them and he says to them about this, all the things that he's talked about, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In fact, and in the NIV it says, because you no longer try to understand. You're just sort of like, you're getting distracted, or you're given up, or you're saying, ah, too tough, whatever. You're, you're no longer trying to understand. You're not seeking the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom of God. You're not trying to grow in discernment. And because of that, you're not able to get the word. You're not able to get it into you. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, or the elementary truths of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child or an infant. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Maybe you're not an athlete in the natural maybe you haven't done much physical activity in the natural but you understand the concept of what an athlete goes through to train for something they train and they train and they may even throw up sometimes because their body is so fatigued, so affected but they will keep pushing and they will keep exercising and they will keep practicing why? because they have this goal that they want to be fit and to achieve and to pursue The Bible is saying you need to practice and to train and to develop your senses in discernment. What senses? Your eyes? Oh, lots of people. Your ears? Oh, they praised me. Oh, your mouth? Oh, you know, all these things that are coming as blessings. Oh, look at the, the, the wonderful things that I'm enjoying. The pleasures that I have. Must be the work of God. No, no, no. The Bible's not talking about your physical senses. It's talking about our spiritual senses. That we would be able to say, Lord, what should I do to train my eyes to see you and the things of God? What should I do to train my ears to hear you and the things of your word? What should I do to taste and see that the Lord is good? What should I do to feel my way, to know that even in the darkness, I can feel and understand where I should go? How do I train my senses? and the first time you try something, it doesn't seem to work, or you don't know, or you're not sure. I use this analogy many times, that the first time you hear a dog bark, maybe this not. this didn't happen for you, but this is an analogy. You know, The first time you hear a dog bark, you say, what is that? And someone says, That's a dog. And you say, oh, okay. The second time you hear a dog bark, you say, Is that a dog? And someone says, Yes, that's a dog. The third time you hear a dog bark, you say, That's a dog. And they say, "Yep, yeah, that's a dog. The fourth time you hear the dog bark, you say, you know, that's the dog in the neighbor's house in the north side of the house. The fifth time you hear another dog bark, that's the dog in the neighbor's house on the other side. And you've started to distinguish the sounds. You've started to understand which dog it is. And you're starting to say, oh, that's the big dog. That's the small dog. That's the pet dog that gets spoiled by those those owners. You know exactly what's going on just by having trained your senses in the natural. How much more should we train our senses in the spirit to say, Holy Spirit, come and show me. Come and show me. I can recite all sorts of lyrics from songs. I can tell you what happened at the last movie that I watched. I can tell you about the wonderful meal that I had in in the restaurant that I just went to. But can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you of what I've experienced from the word? Can I describe to you what my spiritual senses have discerned? And I want to be trained. I want to be built up. I want to have this constant practice so that I don't just say, what is that sound? I say, that is the sound of the call to battle by the Lord Almighty. That is the sound of the devil trying to deceive me and I withdraw. That is the sound of the people calling for help and that is where I will step in. I have discerned what is of God and what is not. That's what the Lord is calling us to. And when he calls us in this way, he asks us, to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 2, verse 27 says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Jesus said this continually, Abide in me, let my words abide in you. I will be in the, in the Father, the Father will be, or I will be in you, you will be in me, we will be in the Father. We will abide together. And in that abiding, in that coming together, that where we are filled with Jesus, we have the mind of Christ, we are anointed by the power and the, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Oh, true discernment starts to come. We start to know, because the Holy Spirit is able to show us what is right, what is wrong. The Holy Spirit who knows the mind of Christ is able to say, this is of God, this is not. Later on in the book of Acts, especially in chapters 8 and 16, we're going to look at what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10 where he describes the gift of discerning of spirits. Right? But this morning I want to emphasize, I want to remind us of a much more basic necessity I'm not talking about the gift of the Lord. I'm talking about being filled, continually filled with the Holy Spirit, so that when we are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit would enable us to discern what is of God, if it is from God. How will you know? How will you know? We have to come to the Lord in these ways. And therefore, we respond to the Lord by desiring and growing in discernment. We respond to him by saying, Lord, I want to grow in discernment. More than 20 years ago, there was a particular time in my life where I was reading a book called Sharpen Your Discernment. And I was reading and going through some of these verses. And it it, it just opened my mind. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I can pray for discernment. I can ask the Lord. And I started to pray. I started to say, oh, God, I want to grow in discernment. I want to know what is right, what is wrong. I want to have your Holy Spirit speak to me almost immediately after that there was a particular situation that happened in my life and it was so clear it was so clear that the Holy Spirit was, it was I didn't hear an audible voice but it, was, it could have been an audible voice it was that distinct what the Spirit said to me And I took an action based on that. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of difficulty that happened because of that result. But I stuck to it because I said, I know I've heard from the Spirit on this. And I knew that the Holy Spirit was responding to my call for discernment. When I said, oh God, I need to know this. I need to understand. I need to grow in discernment. And as the Holy Spirit did that, I was like, "Okay." And through all of that situation, Through all of the difficulty that we faced, God took us out. God brought us out to a better place. God did his work. There was a miracle that took place. You know, Miracles that took place. But it was because it was prompted by saying, I know what is of God and what is not. I could have gone the other way. I could have been swayed by what was happening. I could have given in to what was being asked of me. There was a lot of pressure. But I knew this is of God, this is not. And that's what I'm calling out and challenging us to, that we would be desiring. We would say, "God, Lord, I want to grow in discernment. I want to understand what is right, what is wrong. I want to know your ways and walk in it. I don't want to just go with the flow. My family is Christian, I'm Christian. You know, my church says this, I'll do that. No, I want to grow in discernment. I want to know if this is from you. And when we do that, what we read right at the beginning and the point that Jonathan Edwards made, it has to be discernment that is with love and humility. We don't go to somebody and say, Oh, I know what's right. I know what's right. You're doing something wrong. There has to be a humility in us. There can be no pride if there is discernment. There can be no self-glory to say, Oh, I know everything. I know, I know, I can hear from God. No. And when we go to somebody with discernment, when we deal with them, even when we know that they're doing something wrong, we don't come to come at them with a, with, a, with a fist, you know, we don't say, oh, you're doing something, no, we say, we love you. We want to tell you about the love of Jesus. We want to come to you and show you why Jesus, the good, good Father, that has loved us so much, cares for you, wants to draw you to himself. And I want to tell you about this, Jesus. And I want to tell you about it because I know, I know, I know, I know, I know that this is of God. There is an experience, there is a truth, there is a life that has come in discerning what is of God. And so, we want to apply. We want to apply godly discernment in every decision. We want to say, oh God, I don't want to just do something. I want to know that this is what you want me to do. I want to do what is according to your will. You see, Gamaliel's statement was that if the apostles, if what the apostles was doing was from God, no one would be able to stop them. He recognized that. Anyone who tried to stop them would find themselves fighting against God. We are here today. We're sitting here today because what the Apostles did was from God. Not because of all the other signs and things that happened, but because they were truly glorifying God. They were willing to suffer and to say, oh, we rejoice in this, because we know we're doing what God has called us to do. There will be others all around the world who will also follow the Lord as we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we allow Jesus to continue his ministry in us to do what is from God. But I want to close this morning by saying one more thing. Don't fight against God. Don't fight against God. You may be sitting here, you may be online, you may be listening to me, and I want to encourage you. I want to speak to you directly. Maybe for a long period of time the Lord has been trying to get your attention and the Lord has been speaking to you. The Lord has been sending people to you. The Lord has sent family members to pray for you and to encourage you and to bring the word to you. And you have been resisting. You have been resisting. You have found all sorts of reasons, all sorts of excuses, all sorts of things for why you shouldn't do this. But if this is the work of God, if it is from God, You're not fighting against man. You're not fighting against your brother or your sister or your uncle or your aunt or your nephew who's telling you about Jesus. You're fighting against God. And the statement that I'd make to you is, don't fight against God. Don't fight against God. Ask him and say, God, if this is true, if this is real, if this is where you want me to go, if this is, in fact, your word, your, your truth, your way, your life, if this is the promise of eternity that you are giving me, oh, Lord God, I want to respond. I want to respond. I want to respond to you. And this morning, no matter what situation you're in, and maybe you have believed in the Lord, maybe you have accepted him, maybe you have walked in his ways, but you know, during that time of the Great Awakening, there were a lot of people in the US, a lot of people in Britain, a lot of people all over the world who thought that they were Christians who said, oh no, I'm good. And I'm doing all the good things and the right things. There were lots of religious leaders at the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles who said, we're doing the right things. I want to encourage you, don't fight against God. You may be holding on to something that's actually not of God. You may be holding on to your own selfish ambition. You may be holding on to your own seeking to be glorified in some way. You may be holding on to tradition. You may be holding on to what you think is right, but actually you've never examined by the word of God whether it is right. And I would encourage you, don't fight against God. Don't fight against God. Come to him and say, Lord, I yield to you. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and to fill me, to let your life be in me, to let your truth be in me, to let you guide me, for you to show me the way and the light on that path, for you to help me, to discern what is right and what is wrong. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that it is complete for our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you you allowed Gamaliel to speak a very true word. If it is from God, oh, then nothing can stand against it. And Father, I thank you that it's not about standing against us, somebody standing against us, or somebody standing against what we say. Lord, I thank you that when we pursue you, when we say, Lord, we want to know God and the things of God, and we want to follow in the ways of God. If it is from God, then what have we to fear? What have we to be anxious about? Oh, Lord God, in our own lives, in our families, in the nation around us, Whatever things are going on and news and everything else, if it is from God, hallelujah. Lord God, we thank you that we have nothing, nothing to be concerned about. We can rest assured in you. We can sleep in peace. We can be at peace in all that we would put our hands to. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that this morning you would send us out, Lord, with this word ringing in us to say, Jesus, we want to be people of discernment. We want to be people who will examine the word. We're not going by the external signs. We thank you that those things happen. We thank you, Lord, that there could be all sorts of manifestations, signs and wonders. We thank you that that happens. We don't, don't, Lord, put that aside. We don't, Lord, discourage that. We encourage all of that. But we don't look to that. We look to what you are doing in us to cause us to become more like Jesus. So Lord, we pray for discernment. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.